No music? All right. Well, welcome to the Meeple Syrup Show. Designers discussing design. We're on episode 101, and we be talking the future. We're talking board games and the future. Those two things seem very obvious because the future is now. That's right. So uh, we're, we're going to be talking about cardboard, dice, cards, all that stuff, and how we predict. Maybe we'll look back uh, at episode 200 and see how right we were. We uh, we have recruited some great procrast. Pro- what, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Someone who prognosticators. 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 Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, me with the small vocab, but I am thankfully compensated with two other wonderful hosts. Uh, we have the Dylan Kirk. How are you doing, Dylan? I'm doing okay. I'm, I'm feeling pretty beardy. How about yourself? Uh, not quite as bearded, but I I'm okay with that. I, not I, everyone can be perfect, you know. Right. It's all right. right. And then our our beardless hosts, we have Sen Fong Lim. How are you doing, Sen? I'm feeling very very skinny. Lots of skin going on. Showing off some of the skin. A little, little skin. He's got skin in the game there. Yeah, that's oh, right. Oh, okay. Making the same bad. That's, that's how right. we do that. Hey. Hey. And we got a surprise pop in. Perfect timing. We got Mike. Hello, Hello, everybody. How are you doing? I'm great, pal. Hi. How have your travels been? You just got back to the country recently, right? I've been bouncing around a little bit, so it's been fun. So awesome. Well, we're just going to jump right into things. Uh, We have Mike here, and we're going to welcome our other guests on. We have three guests for our show. Sadly, Mike can only be with us for the first half, but we're gonna we're gonna pepper each of our guests with questions about. No, no, we're going to pepper them with pepper. With pepper. With uh, questions about what do we see as some future trends in the game industry? What do do we see happening? What things do we predict? What things would we like to see happen? So we have uh, Michael here. And Michael, why don't you actually do a little uh, self-promotion here? Tell tell our our watchers, our listeners, who you are, how how you are connected to games. Am I Michael? Only yeah, my wife or... and my mother call me Michael. So, oh, I, so I, yeah. you're Mike. <laughs> Secret Michael. I, I, I'm flexible. You're flexible. flexible. I was just reading yeah. uh, the the Michael in. Uh, oh in your yeah. Below, so. Yeah, yeah. So I I flip and flop, but uh, well, I I've kind of got the board game bug in, in 2004, like a lot of people did when Ticket to Ride and Power Grid came out. I was uh, I was always that one in my family that would bring that game home during the holidays, you know, when categories came out and taboo and, and, uh, so I've always been a gamer, but that rediscovery in 2004 was a real eye opener for me. And since then I've just been collecting. I have, uh, too many shelves of games. Uh, but I guess you have to have a guilty pleasure of, of some sort. And I'm glad that's it for me. I've been working at the CBC for 15 years and, uh, recently, I, I started producing a podcast called Nights at the Game Table. And the idea is to explore the realm of storytelling through the games that people play. The theory is that games have become so ingrained in our lives that people are taking some really interesting personal journeys. And so we want to create uh, an NPR documentary style podcast that meets sort of a roundtable for follow up discussion. And we've been. We've been putting episodes out now for about six months, and uh, this is a big year for us because our first full season starts in April, so we're very excited. 
excellent cool. excellent excellent yeah so um we also have with us today mr peter c hayward peter's coming into the feed right now and he's gonna need to unmute himself there he is. Hello. hello how are you i'm good how are you good dylan what's up so well i wanted to just kind of see peter so if we're going to be talking about the future we should probably talk about the present so if you could just give us a bit of a, of your present right now uh, so I am a game designer, publisher, and developer. I'm, I'm the classic triple threat. I, uh, I I do some designs for various companies. I have my own company, Jellybean Games, who have had two games out so far. We've got another one coming to Kickstarter March 7th, Lady and the Tiger. Check it out. Uh, but my for my day job, I do board game development. So I, I work with a lot of different companies, uh, refining and improving their games to hopefully make them better, but mostly just make them worse and then take the money and run. <laughs> it's a big scam. It's very effective. So, so don't hire, don't hire Peter. But yeah, I'm, I'm also a salesman of my talents, as you can see here. No, I, <laughs> and I, I, that I, is I, what I'm looking forward to in the future of board gaming. <laughs> Thank you very much. Excellent. And we also have with us the one, the only Mr. Charles, right? Charles, where are you, dude? Oh, there he is. Hey, Charles, what's up? Hey, Ben, can you hear me now? I can hear you now. I think you've got some lag going on, buddy. Are you like on a wireless connection? I am on a wireless connection. Hmm. Okay, well, we'll see what, what works. If there's an opportunity for you to go plug into a wired, like, a, like an actual Ethernet cable, that would be helpful, but it's okay if not. Dylan, what do you got to say? Well, let's, let's see where your present is. What, what have you got to present us with in this present? Well, like pretty much everyone else I know in the board game industry, I've connected through J.R. Honeycutt. Um, <laughs> so many you industry should make a people. game, Six Degrees of J.R. Six Degrees of J.R. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, my J.R. number is, is uh, pretty low in the way that that's measured. Um, I'm, yeah, definitely grateful to him. I develop for Foxtrot Games, and I've done some other you know, side work uh, contractually over the last year with three or four companies. Um, that's that's about it. My full-time job is math, so uh, teaching that, tutoring that. I have a game design elective class that I teach at a local high school, and I hit up about 10 conventions a year. Very cool. Very wow. Cool. That's a lot of conventions. That's, that's like, impressive. That's like one more than nine if we're talking math. Right? <laughs> awesome. Uh, um, so we're going to go back to Mike. Mike, tell me, you know, right now, how do you feel about the present situation of board gaming? What do you think? Uh, I think we have too many games out on the market right now. And I, I know I say that, I got to say that very carefully, but there are, uh, in my opinion, to, to be honest, I feel that it's very difficult to uh, cipher the, the really good games out there right now. There's, I, I had the great pleasure of going to Essen in the fall and i just couldn't believe how overwhelming it felt seeing 800 games released at a convention um to make educative decisions on what you think you like is really difficult to do and i've actually found in the last few months that sometimes i'm i'm purchasing games not really knowing what it's about because these games come out and and you you see the hype and they sell out very quickly. You don't want to miss the boat. And I've actually had some experiences where I've I've purchased games and for not doing the due diligence. So if 
you know, um, the amount of games that are coming out of, if they're going to continue at this rate, I would, I would like to find a way to be better, better educated so that I, I really truly know what the game is about. I, I'm, you know, now I haven't played this game yet. I have it on my shelf, but I, I have a copy of Seafall. There's a great example of a game that was hyped up greatly. And I felt like, I don't know about you guys, but it felt like it was a shoe-in to be just a home run in every sense of the word. And I'm really surprised at how much mediocre feedback there is about that game. And so if we're going to have that many games come out, we all know that we like to we like to spend our money on games. If, if we're going to continue to do that, we have to be able to uh, have a way to make better informed decisions because I, I sadly, I hate to say it, but I, I think there were a lot of people that maybe would have backed out if they had known more about the game. And, and that's not a cheap game. Absolutely. Uh, good stuff there. I'm going to actually continue this uh, topic over to Peter, but specifically uh, I'm going to focus it on, on the crowdfunding side. Cause I know Peter, you have experience uh, using crowdfunding and, I think a lot of people have found crowdfunding really uh, a catalyst uh, in the last few years. Where do you see crowdfunding kind of fitting into this thing of a saturated market and where do you see it long term? So saturated market is a perfect way of putting it. And I think, uh, so in, in the last, in the last say three months, I've seen a few people launch Kickstarters with what I would consider like to be modest, reasonable expectations, and almost no one has hit those expectations. Like in the last six months, the only real Kickstarter success has been Kingdom Death Monster, which is now I think the third or fourth highest fund Kickstarter of all time. That's a weird aberration. But outside of that, I think that the Kickstarter audience is shrinking, shrinking, shrinking. I really think that, I'm sorry, the Kickstarter audience is growing. The amount that everyone is spending on individual Kickstarters is shrinking. So. I don't. I don't think you can launch anymore with with a you know a solid game with solid everything and, and solid everything behind it, and still hit those $150,000, marks. I think we're we're starting to reach a point now where Kickstarter you need to really stand out for the market to even have a chance of reaching a, you know a, a, a modest goal, and I think that trend's going to continue. I think a lot of people saw like the the fire hose of money that was has been Kickstarter for the last six years tried to jump in and now yeah it's so oversaturated that people on an individual project level are struggling even as more money is being poured into the kickstarter kickstarter uh, sphere generally so i'm gonna kind of run with this and pass it over to charles and i'm gonna say charles a do you agree that uh, there's too many games and and b how do we differentiate in a market where there's oversaturation I personal goal of my collection down to half of its current size for this year is a reflection of my own life. Um, of course, I'm still making games <laughs> and we just announced another one today. So, you know, there's, there's a little bit of both and there. Um, the, the way to differentiate um, a lot of times, as we've seen by some of the big players is in their customer service is in their component quality if you buy Imperial Assault, you know you're getting a complete, well-developed game because they have a brand that they've established. And there's, there's some brands that focus more on the visual appeals, and it's not to say that they don't develop their games at all, but, but you can tell they spend more time on the visuals. Some companies try to differentiate themselves with that development and try to draw the attention of reviewers who really appreciate the elegance in their design and, this, and the streamlined gameplay. 
So that's, that's more of the side that I'm on is really caring a lot about the gameplay, about the mechanisms in the games and things like that, and hope that that makes the brands that I'm associated with shine with especially a lot of the, um, the, um, you know, the Borg mentality that that's soaking up in the, in the industry, you know, there, there could be a move away from that. So that's, I think that's actually a pretty good segue because, uh, so first off, we started talking about uh, the fact that there's way too many games, but over the past couple of years, we've seen a heck of a lot of mergers in several very well-known companies. So maybe I can pass the question over to, to Mike here and say, what did you see at Essen from the perspective of what big companies are doing versus how small companies are, are trying to market their games? Well, size of their, uh, their space is certainly one thing. I mean, you walk through a company like Queen Games, not only do they have large spaces, but they spend a lot of money on their production value. And I think they had more than one space there. Um, you know, the paradox is, as we talk about the saturation of games, uh, I'll, I'll get back to Essen in just a moment, but I, one interesting thing uh, sort of piqued my attention that, you know, I think I might be the only person not attached to some, for, some form of board game design or production. Like you, you, that's why it's hard for me to comment and, and, and um, share my true feelings about it because I find that every time I'm in this discussion with somebody, I find that they're connected to board game design or board game production in some uh, kind of form. And yet the other side of the paradox is I'm so glad and thankful that all of you guys have decided to take that plunge because the end result has been you've made great games and you can you continue to do so. Um, getting back to the Essen, uh, the question about Essen, you know, there were a couple of games that, um, that I came back with that haven't yet come out on uh, the North American market. And so I was really glad to, to grab those. A couple from Japan games, we're starting to see those now. But there was a game called Captains, and it was a circular board. I haven't pulled it out in a while, but it was almost... I would describe it as a world of Yoho game that's a lot deeper, but without the digital technology. And uh, I found that that game really appealed to me, and I haven't seen that come over in the North America market. So, you know, at the same time that I that I say there are too many games, I also feel like, gosh, there's a lot of these unknown companies out there that you know, every once in a while, they're making a really, really great game. And so how do you decide, how do you decide what should stay and what should go? And it's almost an unanswerable question right now. So you just kind of have to accept it and, and go along with the flow and accept it for what it is right now and do your best to, uh, to make your choices. I will say this, I have almost completely avoided Kickstarter in the last six to eight months. Um, why that is, I'm not sure. I, I guess I kind of have to think about that uh, during this conversation because I haven't. I've I've only reached a point where I recognize I'm not spending as much money on Kickstarter, but I don't know the real reasons for that right now. I, I I'll jump in. I've also not spent anything on Kickstarter for a while, and. Uh, it's because I've implemented a single rule with my game collection. It's actually changed the way not only that I collect games, but also the way that I think about designing and publishing and developing games, which is to my left, uh, just off screen, I have a single bookshelf. So like a, a Billy Ikea bookshelf. 
every single board game I own is on that shelf, and every single board game I'm allowed to own is on that shelf. And so now every time I look at any game, whether it's a game I'm looking at making or looking at buying or looking at kickstarting, I have to look at the shelf and think, am I, and Tom Vassell from The Dice Tower does something very similar. I look at this shelf and say, look, what game will I throw out or you know, give away or, or, or donate or trade? What game will I remove from my collection in order to add that game? And in order for like, this is a honed collection now of all of my favorite games. So for a game to enter that shelf, it has to be truly exceptional and truly do something different. And that's why I think like the hits that we've seen lately are, are the, the legacy games, because they're so different and they offer such a unique experience. Uh, and, and so to answer Mike's question of, you know, how do we, how do we decide what, what to do next? I think you need to look at every project that you're considering, whether it's working on or, or buying into or, or developing or being involved in or, or putting your time in and say, what does this replace? Because for a lot of consumers, you know, there are the collectors who will, who will buy literally, you know, a, an entire house of board games and never stop. But for most people, they have limited time, they have limited money, they have limited ability to buy games. And so you have to not only make a good solid game with good solid everything, you need to make something that is so good that they must have it. And that sounds like an obvious thing with any creative endeavor, but it's actually, it's not a natural impulse to, to, to be like, you know, I'll finish a game and be like, this is a fun game. But now I've started looking at it being like, look, this is a fun game. This is a solid game. I enjoyed playing this. What game does this replace or how does this make a space for itself in the market? And so, yeah, Mike, that, that's how I feel you can, um, that, that, that's my metric is what I'm trying to say of how I how I answer that question. Yeah, I'm getting really comfortable with the idea of borrowing people's games. I'll give you a great example from Essen that I did not buy, and that was uh, Solarius. Uh, it's a Spielworks game. Solarius Mission? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. I, I know that uh, Milena Gubernich has a copy of that game in Toronto because she owns everything. So I actually have a theory that she has the most expensive storage space as a as in the in the form of a condo, uh, in in the world, and uh, and she's wonderful. She's uh, she's actually joined our podcast team recently too. But but I think we have to get comfortable with the idea of not needing to own everything, especially right now, and uh, embrace the assumption that somebody's probably going to own something you don't have. You know, there. You, can you guys go back to that time in 2004 where you could almost buy everything? And think of how much that has changed in the last 12 years now. Yeah, definitely. Definitely has changed. So there's a lot of good points that you guys are bringing up. Um, one of the things that Mike mentioned was a game called World of Yoho, which is an app-driven pirate game. Uh, and I, that's one of the questions that Michael Chang is asking on the feed. He says, what are everyone's thoughts on digital implementations, either apps, tabletop simulator, even companion apps? And I've just gone through um, Mansions of Madness with Jesse. And Daryl and I are working on a bunch of app implementations for some of our games. Um, Daryl, what are your thoughts on getting app-driven games? Is that the future of board gaming and tabletop things? Yeah, this is a great question. I, to be honest, I I expected by now we would have seen more success stories. I thought I thought XCOM, for instance, was going to be this kind of a watershed moment, and I'm still waiting for for that to really break through. I think the the potential is 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 very high because there's a lot of things that you can do well with technology integration, uh, things like math and and uh, simulations and stuff like that. And it's also really cost effective to be able to distribute it, and you know it just solves a lot of different problems: hidden information, randomization, a lot of things like that. But 
Uh, with that said, I, I, I still haven't seen, as much as it makes sense in my head, I haven't seen an example of something really breaking through. Like, for instance, Peter was talking about legacy. For instance, we can point to specific examples where legacy seemed like a trend, and then, you know, it, there are actual examples where we can see that it's growing, people are getting very excited about it. And uh, so something like Pandemic 2, um, Season 2, uh, I think will be, you know, continue on the success of Season 1 because, you know, there, there are markers. So um, I hope I hope that's one of the future trends, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually circle around to Charles with a question. Um, you mentioned that you've done development work for a variety of publishers. You, you do it pretty consistently with Foxtrot, and I know a lot of people that watch our show are curious how they can make inroads into the game industry. Maybe talk a little bit about how they're with the oversaturation of games and the need for quality. Uh, are you seeing then more demand and more opportunities for development? Because if that's a differentiator, um, are you finding that people could get into the industry that way? Um, and are you finding that you're getting more and more in demand? More of a demand for development. Um, but we're seeing the designers really have a lot more access and a lot more connection um, to the resources that so many people put out, right? Uh, there's this guy, Calvin, who creates the Streamline Game webpage, and he taught me how to use Nandek. Of course, JR taught me how to use Nandek also. But, I mean, there's with the BGDF, with the BGG forums, so many places these designers have access uh, to resources, and so they're becoming better prepared. Right. I mean, you'll see someone like Daryl walking around a convention with 15 games in his bag and maybe zero rule books. And he doesn't go to speed dating because he knows the way to the way forward and to get that path established. So as more people go and blaze that trail like Daryl or John Gilmore, these guys just dominate the convention scene. Right. You're going to see other people following in their in their footsteps. And then eventually, yeah, you will you'll learn for me getting that first prototype made is very difficult. JR, for Daryl, for these other guys, they can whip up a prototype in a minute. For me, I can take something existing and break it and, and put it back together and hopefully make it better. But I had to go through that process of being a designer myself. So, yes, there's more demand. Um, the jobs are out there. I just had to ask, right? I, I, I asked Randy at Foxtrot. I asked Peter at Breaking Games. I asked Jamie at Stonemeyer. And then, and then now the calls are coming in. And I, I can be selective, Peter, like you were saying. If there's a game that I don't think is going to, to work, I don't have to make it work. I don't have to accept that, that job. And I don't think it's me being a snob, but, but it's really kind of out of respect for all of our game shelves and all the tables that we're trying to get these games to. So we, we've been kind of having a little chat about this on the, on the side, sidebar here, and, and we're talking about uh, evergreen games. And I was wondering if I could uh, just ask a question of Mike about from my my perspective, my interest is in like are there certain IPs or certain games where there are loads and loads of expansions that are being uh, brought out, and that's kind of an angle. Or what what are the evergreen games on the shelves here? Well, I can't wait for Junk Art to become one of those games <laughs> if it hasn't already. I had a great conversation with uh, Jay over at Essen, and to watch him. Um, see that life-size junk art he was just he was just so happy to see it um evergreen games are really hard to come by 
I mean, even if you look at um, a designer like Eric Lang, like, I guess his big evergreen would be Dice Masters right now. But even with that said, I mean, there there are very few Ticket to Ride games out there. There are very few Settlers of Catan games out there. Um, they're just very, very special games for so many reasons. And I, I don't know, maybe Sen would agree, but I... I I feel like accessibility is the number one thing that makes evergreen games evergreen. Like, can any of you come up with a really deep, complicated Euro that could even be described, as great as they may be, uh, an evergreen game? To me, they're really so few and far in between. But you look at a game like Junk Art and how it's being marketed, which I think it would be number two. Sen's going to tell me if I have this order right or not. <laughs> but... I, I look at a game like that and and uh, think that it can have some tremendous success. Whether it reaches the heights of Ticket to Ride, it's hard to say. But Evergreen is a, it is, um, it is a platinum status. And I, I would be very reserving to not put too many games into that category. It's hard to do, though, because you we love games and so much. And when we're seeing more and more of them come out every year. So it's it's hard to not um, say that games are, are awesome when they come out. And I, I hope we don't forget how wonderful games like Catan and Carcassonne and, and uh, uh, Ticket to Ride have been. I hope we don't lose sight of how wonderful those games are as time passes. Mm-hmm. So Dave Stevenson on the feed says uh, Catan and Ticket to Ride are not only accessible but deep, that they use simple rules and combine them with human interactions to create replayability. And even though they're from the past, that does seem like the movement towards the future as well. Peter, what are your thoughts on this whole situation of Evergreen titles? I think that Evergreen games are dead. I do not think that we will see another Evergreen game, maybe like one every year, one every two years, but from now on, I think that the, the market is so full and it's so uh, divided now. So, you know, the Beatles are the greatest game of all time, the, the greatest band of all time, not the greatest game of all time. Um, and the Beatles, you can't have that today because there's a billion different musical markets. You know, yeah. people who are into Death Wish, people who are into Katy Perry, they're not going to both like the Beatles. Whereas when the Beatles were around, that was the case. Uh, and I think I think that the, the, market, the market is segmented enough these days that, like, with it, like, Code Names is probably the last evergreen title I can think of. And they've already released an expansion. They've announced two more. So like the, the idea of an evergreen game that doesn't constantly reinvent itself, I think, is just flat out dead. I think that is just probably never going to happen again. Or if it does, it'll be very, very rare. And I think that the, the trick to evergreen, sorry, the trick to evergreen equivalency these days is to have a game that you can just constantly expand or constantly release new editions like they are with code names. Uh, other than that, I think that, I mean, you mentioned Junkart. Now I'm like, maybe Junkart breaks that system. But um, I, th- I think that uh, Evergreen titles are a thing of the past. Yeah, I think with a game like Junkart, it may be, uh, maybe Evergreen needs to be redefined. You know, it's it's hard to say. I don't know what the future of, of a game like Junkart is. It's... Um, it's certainly up against big competition when you think of games like Catan and Ticket to Ride, but you can't deny that um, as a game designer, I think right now, the and I'm making the assumption because I'm not one, but I would have to think that if I was a game designer, my ultimate goal would be 
having a good game that finds a mass market. And yeah. that that necessarily wasn't what an evergreen game used to be, but I think now that's what it is. If you can accomplish that in a world of plenty, then that's as as close to evergreen as as you can get. Yeah, in most but, cases. But evergreen, by de definition, is selling year after year after year. So I think that's mm -hmm. dead. I, I think you're right. Like the, the new evergreen is having a success, but it's not an evergreen. I think evergreen yeah. is actually dead. Like Dead Last came out uh, last year from Smirk and Dagger. It is one of the most like elegant and fun and like rules light and just incredible games. Like it's, it's a social experience that I think is amazing. And they don't know if they're going to do a third printing. Like, 10 years yeah. ago, that, that would have not only been an evergreen, that would have been like the evergreen for all social interaction games. And nowadays, the fact that it might, have, might not even get to 10,000 units, that for me is like the ultimate sign that evergreen as an idea is gone, unless mm. they can release Dead Last 2, like they did with Spyfall 2, like they did with Codename Pictures, like evergreen without constantly re-implementing, re I think is is gone. Yeah, and this is almost in every industry, even even music. I was having a conversation with a musician last week and uh, a rather successful one. Um, and I asked him if he felt like, you know, the music being made today could be appreciated 20 years from now, the way that we look back at the music we grew up with 20 years ago. You know, I'm a, I'm a huge classic rock fan of, of many, many bands. And I don't believe it's nostalgia. I believe that that music was really, really good. And it was made at a time where there wasn't so much music, where somebody couldn't go and spend $200 and record an album in, in their home. Now everybody's making music, which is, is fine. But I do wonder if we can appreciate things that we create decades down the road the way we look at stuff from past decades today. Cool. So let's... Uh turn it back to Charles. Charles, do you think that the market is segmented more than we think it is? Not we, but we as in the general kind of hobby. There's a hobby market, there's the mass market. What other segments might there be? And are there little niches within each of these segments? Oh, sure. I mean, if you look at Barnes and Noble, they've got the family section, the strategy section, the party section, all those kind of things. But there are still so many games within that strategy section. You'll have Munchkin next to Dead of Winter, next to Pandemic Legacy, right? Whereas for me, I, it really, I think people are learning to find what they love and really kind of double down on that and, and get more and more into that. And I see that with local game groups in my area. There are game groups that are almost purely Euros, pure fillers, you know, more of like those evergreen titles and gateway games and publishers do that a lot. I, you know, we've been surprised by like cool many or not. Some of their not many games are, are really surprising. And uh, you get some of those unusual suspects kind of games can, can break in and, and reach out into a new market, which would have been like a Kickstarter miniatures dominated market. And they say, Oh, Hey, our favorite publisher is now putting out something that we can play with the family, you know, or, or play over the holidays. So I don't, I don't know if it's more or less segmented, but I, I know so many people that I'm around are really kind of, right? Like Peter talked about honing his collection. My collection is honed just for my board game evangelism purposes. I run a lot of local gaming events, um, and it's so open to new people. And if I'm the only one bringing games, I'm bringing no two- to four-player games. I'm bringing five-player up games, you know, table of seven, that kind of thing. And 
and that's because that works for me. And I think a lot of people are finding what works for them more easily because of the, the internet and things like that. And then just moving towards that. Absolutely. Well, uh, before Mike leaves us, I want to give you one chance uh, before you go to just maybe point out any uh, other future trends that you're noticing in the industry. Uh, you know, a real law ball here. If there's anything <laughs> particular that you want to point out that you, you've been noticing on your journey, especially over the last little bit of interviewing people and talking to people. And then also just uh, give a, a last minute plug before you go. Oh, sure. Hey, I wore this baseball hat just for you, by the way. You like I that? love it. All I right. love it. Uh, you know what? I, I think innovation is a really interesting word. And one of the episodes that we want to do on our podcast is, is really trying to understand what innovation means. A lot of people talked about the game 504 as being really innovative when it came out. And I couldn't have disagreed more. And the reason why is because to me, innovation it tells me, it makes a clear message as to what its intent is. Something as simple as streaming video or the electric car. You hear those terms and you know exactly what purpose it's supposed to serve. I didn't get that with that game. Um, I haven't, I haven't seen innovation in games that require digital components. You know, in 2014, I, there were four notable games. There was Golem Arcana, World of Yoho, uh, Alchemists, and XCOM. Those, to me, were the four notables of 2014. In 2015, we didn't see anything. And then Fantasy Flight came out with a wonderful way to use digital technology, um, which is to say that, you know, when it comes to digital apps, it's hard to say what's going to be coming down the pipeline next. I, for one, think that there's a lot of really wonderful things to explore still within the realm of um, the traditional gaming mechanisms. I think you, all of you as designers would readily acknowledge that you're discovering new ways to implement the way you use components. And to me, I'm, I'm still eager to spend most of my time there and see where people come up with new twists on on the traditional board game. I'm not completely against the use of digital technology. I think what Fantasy Flight uh, has done with uh, Imperial Assault and Mansions of Madness, look how much better they made that game simply by having that app work as, as a dungeon master. It creates endless opportunities. It streamlines the game. Um, it makes it a lot more fun to play. Um, there's so much to be excited about. I... I um, I kind of just sit back in my chair and wait for the stuff to come out because there's so many wonderful creative people that uh, I don't get just excited about one thing. Even our podcasts, right? You know, the, I guess this is where I'll, I'll tran uh, transcend into the plug. You know, with Nights at the Game Table, we, we wanted to tell stories. We wanted to do it in a documentary style fashion so that people could either want to take action uh, from what they heard or be impacted by what they heard. You know, in the case of our second episode, we we explored the Jack Vassal Memorial Fund and we went to Wisconsin to visit a beneficiary and telling her story resulted in us receiving so many emails about people who said they were having a bad day and after they heard Cindy's story, they they wanted to have a better day. They were going to try and stand up and brush the dirt off their pants and and that made us it made it, it was really wonderful to get that kind of feedback. So 
there are so many avenues and so many wonderful people that are trying to push this hobby in a number of different ways that to just center on one singular thing I think would be almost a mistake and I for one am very very excited about what everybody's bringing to the table I don't think we've even seen the big bang happen yet I think there are still far too many people who are still playing Monopoly and have never heard of the Settlers of Catan I'll, I'll actually tell you right now the guy I talked with last week was Ed Robertson from the Bare Naked Ladies and he just played Settlers of Catan for the first time a couple weeks ago and now he's ordering his expansion and you know, he's asked me a couple times now, like, what do I get next? What do I get next? So I sent him a copy of King of Tokyo, and I sent him uh, the Game of Things. Just a simple party game, right? So we we can't um, we can't neglect um, the traditional traditional sense of the board game because there's still far too many people yet to discover this wonderful hobby. And thank you for having me. I hope I filled the shoes all right. This was very last minute. I still have my pajama shirt on for. God's sake. So. No, it was great. Thank you so much, it's, it's, Mike. It's lovely Thanks, Mike. and patriotic and very Toronto of you. Go Leafs, go, baby. <laughs> I, we might make the playoffs. That's enough for me. It's exciting yeah, hockey. It's, it's, it's the hope. It's the hope. <laughs> There's nowhere to go but up. Hey, thanks for uh, the time and nice meeting all you guys. All right, and we'll see nice you at Breakout you. in a couple uh, weeks. Yep. Take care, guys. Excellent. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Delay. Uh, I, I kind of I, I wanted to say last week I played this game carnage hell yeah and it's by devil pig games and they what they seem to have done is they've got a really they've got their market segment kind of spotted they know exactly where it is and they know where to deliver it you know what 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 product they're going to deliver they're going to put it on kickstarter it's it seems like it's becoming a reasonably well-oiled machine and so i want to kind of pass over to charles these guys look like they've picked their market segment are you feeling that it's getting maybe more um, Machiavellian in, in, I guess Machiavellians might not, the, might not be the right word, but as, as a designer developer, do you feel kind of you've got to pick your market segment before you start designing even? Like you've already got to start thinking about marketing because of all this segmentation before you go into to try to make or improve a game? Oh, absolutely. Um, for some of my own designs, I've got the publishers picked out. Of course, that's and I don't mean that as like an arrogant way, but I am designing, like I'm specifically designing a game for game right. Because if I say that to you, you know what kind of game I'm designing. And that I need that kind of vision and focus for my procedures to not hit so many roadblocks. And so, but in the same way in the development world, um, we are, <laughs> we're not signing games that don't fit our brand, um, but we've picked that brand and we've picked the kind of games that we're going for. And, and yeah, the more people get on a team, the more that bubble um, kind of expands and, and spreads out. But it's a wise thing to do. It's a wise thing to begin with the end in mind and, and move forward with that. If you want to make a very profane game and you just can't have it be like a, a six-stage, you know, three-hour game, you know, Euro game with legacy components or whatever, right? Although so I there's think a market you did that, that'd be freaking awesome. Oh, maybe so. 
Well, yeah, with Jellybean Games, which is my company, I we have we have a tagline, which is uh, kid-friendly games that grown-ups love. It is very like it is not a it is, it is a extremely specific market. We are trying to make games that kids can play with each other, and adults can play with each other, and parents can play with their children without any side getting bored. Because you know you can play shoots and ladders with a kid, and the kid's engaged, but you're not. You can play Twilight Imperium with a kid, and you might be having a grand time. The kid is very unlikely to. And so it's this insanely specific market. Uh, and, and I think the reason that we've seen such success on Kickstarter is because I don't think it's a market that many people are exploring. After we started, I discovered Kids Table Board Games, which is a Toronto-based company who are doing literally the exact same thing. Like they saw that same market and they specifically targeted that. But uh, yeah, I, I think the trick to success in the current oversaturated world is, is what you're saying. Like you have, to spit, you have to choose something really specific and then nail that. And then... Uh, yeah, and then on top of that recently, like I said, we've been like, oh, we can't just make good games. You know, good enough is not good enough anymore. It needs to make a space for itself in the market. And so that's, we already had a really limited field of like simple enough that kids can play, complex enough that adults are engaged. And now we're like, and it has to be radically different to everything else out there. So right now uh, we, we have, we are, we are not, not struggling for, for um, games to find, but it's, it's a really narrow, narrow uh, games that we'll look at. So uh, we're going to say goodbye to Charles now, I think. Charles, we'll see you later. Thanks so much for popping in and joining us on this afternoon of Meeple Syrup Goodness. It's great to hear more people getting into the development end of things. Not that you haven't been there for a while, but uh, it just gives me more confidence in the games that are coming out that there is some more thought behind it and some more eyes on the game than just the money man and the original designer. It's really important. Thanks for having me, guys. Not a problem. Um, let's see. Oh, Peter, uh, I did want to ask you a question uh, now that we're talking about, um, you know, finding that niche and going for it, because we actually do the exact opposite. We actually, uh, we design so many things at various levels that that's actually what keeps us in business. Uh, as, as designers, absolutely. But if, if you and Jay were a publisher, I think that you would you would find that as, as an approach not really working for you. If, if you and Jay were like, look, we're going to make Belfort and then Junkart and try to get the same audience to buy, then I think you'd struggle. Whereas as is, and, and I, I saw you speak at the at the con a few weeks ago, and you said that you know you said exactly what Charles says. When you design a game, you have a publisher in mind for it. Oh, exactly. Um, yeah. So you, you might be designing a Harbor game. You might be designing a, a you know Stonemaier game. Uh, and so as designers, yes, to keep yourself in business, you're you're being broad, um, but Game by game, you're being specific, and as a publisher, we have to treat it in that same way. We have a specific audience who we've we've gotten, and we are we're providing for that audience. Does that make sense? Yeah. Carol. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're gonna take advantage of this opportunity to just keep uh, peppering Peter with questions for for our next kind of ten minutes of the show. But I just I, I want to say uh, thank you. Uh, one of the things I, I specifically want to ask you, Peter, is I've noticed you've been popping up all over the map at conventions and such, and I want you to talk maybe uh, into why that matters. Do you think that matters, and especially future forecasting? Does that you know what does that mean when it comes to publishers being at conventions or even just conventions in general? What do you see the trend? So the I, I'm I'm in a weird position because I'm wearing three hats at once because I genuinely like spend roughly equal amount of time developing, For publishing, sure. designing, and so far we've only published my designs, but that is that is changing in the near future, um, and so I am I am as a publisher there looking at games, looking at pictures, 
I'm there as a designer to play test. And uh, the thing I was talking about, about you need to make a space for yourself in the market. There's basically three ways that you can do that. One is to be the first to do something, which is what Risk Legacy did and then Pandemic Legacy kind of built on. But you know, in 10 years' time, not every legacy game will be a hit because people will be like, yes, we know what legacy is. And so the second thing you need to do, uh, so you know, either need to be the first or you need to be the best. You need to be not only like a good legacy game when they become, at least drafting, you know, uh, you can't just make a good drafting game anymore and have it be a hit. But if you made a game that was three times as good as Seven Wonders, I think that would be a huge hit in the same way as a, as a new genre would be. And, uh, and and so the way to get that like that level of just polish is to play test it, play test it, play test it. So I've been blind playtesting like crazy. And the trouble with blind playtesting is that you run out of people who haven't played your game before. And so I find it really handy to go to cons with a, with a set of the rules, with a set of the components, hand it over and be like, hey guys, I'm gonna watch you play my game. So as, as a publisher there, I'm there to look at new games. As a designer, I'm there to get people to blind playtest my games because I think that's the number one way in which you can be like, oh, obviously this needs to be improved, you know, once you've got a functioning game. Uh, and then, but most importantly, as a developer, um, the connections you make at cons are about 100% of my development work. Every single development gig I've gotten has been through someone I met at a con. We might have been playtesting a game together and I gave feedback that they're like, oh, this guy knows what he's talking about. Or they might have played one of my designs and been like, oh, this guy, you know, can design a game. Or, uh, you know, I might have kidnapped their wife and children and they've been like, oh man, I really want them back at some point. And so, yeah, the connections that you make at at the cons uh, for for a developer are vital. Like I don't think I don't think you can make a living as a developer in this industry unless you're you're showing your face at cons and just meeting people and impressing people. Honestly, uh, so that, that's the reason why I'm I'm just at every con I can get to, which is uh, expensive and exhausting. And uh, you know, my boyfriend is like, I want to see you at some point in this relationship. But um, it, yeah, in terms of getting to cons, it is it is so vital. I, I kind of wanted to expand to the plenary here, if I could just kind of set the scene and, and, and <laughs> ask, ask everyone here, as a guy who's not going to cons, where is the competition happening? So let me, let me kind of clarify what, what I'm asking here. Are there, like, is there a race to get new themes? Are there given themes that people are competing to do best at or to, to mine first? Are, are people looking for completely new methods of gameplay? Uh, is there some kind of mechanics arms race? Where is the competition happening? Like where where is the market segmenting? Where um, what's the new stuff that people are mining out of the the brains of designers to to offer up at, at each con and, and uh, in each new new year? I kind of want to put it out to everyone. Why don't we why don't we start with Daryl and kind of move across the screen? <laughs> sure, sure. I uh, absolutely one that I mean, Peter already mentioned was this idea of being first, and I think uh, I can point to a few examples from my from my own experience. Uh, a classic. Uh, I have mine all mines coming out now. Uh, unfortunately, uh, when I pitched that, there was maybe one popular dwarf game out. Since that game got signed and then got bogged down with changing artists three times and. Uh, a bunch of different things. It became one of the very many dwarf-themed games. And also, like my pitch was, hey, it's it's Splendor with a theme. Well, there's even a bunch of Splendor-ish games that came out. So it was like, at the end of the day, I love the game. I think it actually has some, you know, innovative twists and it's fun and it's interactive and it, you know, is a, a very quick 
to the table game. For me, I'm very excited about it. But unfortunately, I think it'll be a little bit lost on the shuffle because uh, a it didn't come out at a con. It didn't you know have a big hype machine, and also it came late for a theme that you know people are getting tired of. So that's I mean one example right off the top of the head of my head that I can think of, and I'm sure others can think of other reasons why there's a bit of a race to uh, to the market. Uh, Peter, what what's another example that you can think of? Of uh, oh, do we lose? Nope. Sorry, uh, no, I, I pressed the wrong button. I was unmuting myself, but I hid myself instead. Um, well, actually, you, you you the example you said is absolutely perfect in that. For me as a designer and for a lot of other designers I know, we will come up with game ideas by playing a game and being like, oh, I just wanted this to be, and then go and make that game. So I had a game uh, that kickstarted last year, Dracula's Feast, it's going to the printer in the next week or so, which was me playing the resistance and playing werewolf and always being given the villager role. And I hate being given the villager role. So I designed this game where every role is different and it turned into this kind of cool logic puzzle. It's it's quite fun. And so that 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 is an exact example of me playing a game being like, I want this. The example that you mentioned is the one that I'm seeing all the time at the moment, which is, ah, oh, but what if Splendor had actual thematic elements? And so I'm working on a co-design with Kevin Carmichael where we try to fix that. The con I went to this weekend, Expedition Prototype Con in Florida, I played at least two games that were exactly that. People were like, I like Splendor, but what if it had a theme? And so your, your Dwarven game. And so, yeah, that, that's a great example of something where something has come out and it's scratched a lot of itches, but it's left a lot of people still a little bit itchy and so they're trying to make a game to fix that. And so whether whether even that can be long-term successful in, in that what I was saying is that you need to be like truly innovative and like move and make some space in the industry, making Splendor with a theme almost by definition isn't that. It, it's it's not, to, not to insult your game or my game or these other games I played, but uh, it's it's... It's not making a space for the industry if you're saying, hey, it's like this one, but slightly different, that by definition is the opposite of that. So yeah, I, I think uh, a lot of what you're saying has uh, rings true and resonates with me as well. There's definitely some races, uh, you know, as soon as Pandemic Legacy came out, and, you know, Risk Legacy was kind of the, you know, the litmus test. And it's like, eh, we're not sure. But then Pandemic came out and everybody saw just how much power there was in the legacy mechanic. And now everybody wants to make a legacy mechanic. And people are saying, well, I like legacy, but I don't like that you rip up cards. I don't like that you can't redo it. So we're making a legacy game that you can, you know, so everybody is putting their own twists on things. And they're really just evolutions of the same thing. They're not revolutions of the game industry. There definitely are things that revolutionize the game industry, like deck building, like legacy and things like that. But for a lot of the, the, I'd say a good, 99.9% of the games out there aren't revolutionary. They're just merely evolutionary. That's my my own games included, right? I mean, Belfort is really just a worker placement game plus an area control game taken to the nth degree. Um, And, you know, Junk Art is really just a stacking game like Bowsack that has cards added to it with strategy. Uh, And it's, it's actually those little mechanical differences that make the game what it is and do elevate it to a new level. But again, it's not revolutionary. It's, it's evolutionary. Uh, And so I I think we need to see perhaps a few more revolutions in terms of how things are used like app driven things. So in the effect that um, I think one of the things that we shoot ourselves in the foot with as game designers when we go to apps, we have to always say, oh, but I we want to make sure that we can play it without the app, 
that's one thing that everybody has to say when when they are developing that. Not all the games do it, but most people think that. The other thing that we typically do when we develop app-driven games is we say, okay, it can't replace the game entirely because people need to buy this game, not just buy this app because I'm not a video game developer or that kind of thing. So we haven't seen a real revolution in the app-driven market, I don't think yet, because of the implicit tie to cardboard or plastic. And I, I think that kind of thing is really kind of getting in the way uh, of, of the race to be first in a way. Uh, Daryl. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Dylan. I just wanted to say, remind me in the after show to link that back to steamships in 1866. Steamships oh. in 1866. We will definitely okay. remember that. So, I mean, I, I have another quick question on the innovation front or, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of building some framework here with uh, revolutionary versus evolutionary. Um, but I, I, I want to show an example and then bridge that to a question for Peter. But even I am noticing people rethinking uh, how to use just even our basic components in new ways. I mean, if we look at something like Hanabi and just simply turning the card around uh, or even uh, for for designers prototyping, I think of, you know, traditionally having a dice, then all of a sudden us getting more and more into blank dice and now getting into something like, you know, I, I'm still waiting for this dice to blow up, but, you know, these custom uh, dice that uh, Stephen Glenn helped, um, you know, bring to the market. But uh, to me, I uh, I love that this is still a dice and that, you know, we're thinking of new ways of just using a die or flipping a card around. What are you starting to see are some fun ways to elevate games where it's still just, you know, you're working in paper, you're still working in cardboard. What are what are some things that you're noticing out there that makes games stand out? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, so, I've not played Pandemic Legacy yet. I've only played Risk Legacy, and at, at the con I was at, I saw someone who basically took the sticker side of of those Legacy games and basically designed a system around that. So, you start with a ship and you upgrade it with stickers, and you upgrade, upgrade, upgrade. Um, it is still it is still a one. He doesn't call it a Legacy game. He calls it an Evolution game. Uh, and it's it's so it's still a it's it's still a you know a one way thing, but it's just purely focusing on that sticker side. And there's something so lovely and tactile about stickers. Like uh, you know, as a kid, we used to have stickers and sticker books, and I I'm, I'm like, there's coloring books for adults. Why are there no sticker books for adults? Like that's quite fun in itself. And so I think I think stickers is one of those things. Um, for me, my obsession is. Did you is read my thread about scratch and stiff stickers the other day? No, that's amazing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's for teaching, not for game design. But now, <laughs> now it'll be. There we go. So like, uh, there was, was actually a game I played about three years ago, and I've never seen anyone do with, do anything with it since. It was a game about drone strikes. So it was, it was too political to ever hit the mass market, and it was not good enough to ever hit the mass market. But the idea was that you have a hand of cards, and you're trying to uh, trying to send cards to other people and get cards back. But at any point, like once a game or once a turn or something like that, you can grab your smartphone, open the camera app, and take a photo of their hand. And they can try to shield it or like dodge as much as they want, but they're not allowed to cover it up. And I remember thinking, that's brilliant, because that is, that's not app-driven. Like, that you don't need to download an app for that. Every single phone that has a camera on it, you can do that with. Uh, and so that'll never go out of vogue. Like the concern with a lot of app-driven games is that, you know, what about when the publisher stops existing or when the iOS updates and we can't download the app anymore, the game is dead. It's just an empty box of cardboard now. You know, it's a dead box of cardboard on my shelf. But as long as we have cameras 
which presumably the human race is not going to move away from any any anytime soon. That's something like I would love to play a really good game that relies on that. It's almost dexterity camera element. I don't know. I, I feel like uh, the thing that I would I haven't seen anything with, so it doesn't quite answer the question. But what I would like to see is someone do a camera based game. That would be really cool. All right, so let's get. Um, oh, we're at that time! Wow, no, I'm just looking. We're at, at that time. time. Yeah. Okay. So this is the last question, uh, Peter. Last question to you, sir, is as in. Okay, so for each of your three hats that you wear, can you give one piece of advice that you wish you had known before you started the whole thing? Oh, okay. Yes. Uh, as a publisher. Don't, oh God, I, I, it's hard to say, but you, uh, trust no one. That sounds super suspicious. I mean, like I've worked with a number of freelancers and I've found three that I'm like, I will work with them from now until the end of time. And everyone else was almost like uniformly a waste of time and money. And so like you, you can't trust people when they talk about their abilities. You can't trust your friend when they recommend people. The only way to know if someone's worth working with is to work with them. So start with a little project, like start small, give them a $100 commission. And then if that works, start to build out. But yeah, the mistake I made as a publisher was going whole hog on like a designer, whole hog on a, on a, a graphic designer or whole hog on an artist, and then having it all spectacularly collapse three or four months later. And I was out a lot of time. I was out a lot of money. I was out a lot of momentum. So yeah, as, as a publisher, trust no one. <laughs> Um, as a, as a designer, are you okay, Sen? You look a bit like you're dying. Okay. Uh, as a, <laughs> as a designer, um, I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm far from the first person who said this, even on this show for every 50 ideas you have throw away 49. And that comes back to the evolutionary versus revolutionary thing. Like you will have 49 great ideas. Great is not good enough. It needs to be better than great to have a chance. I have designed full games that I'm like, those are fun to play, but they like since I got this single shelf system, they wouldn't go on my shelf. I absolutely would not put those on my shelf anymore. Uh, yeah, good enough is not good enough. It has to be spectacular to get picked up, especially your first game. Like once you've got some inroads into the industry, you can get stuff that's not the next big thing picked up, but you want to you want to have the next big thing. And then as a developer, cut, 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 cut. Just get rid of everything that you can. Uh, I when I'm developing games, I will, I will, the first thing I'll do is I'll take out a whole system and play the game without that system with new players. And if the new players aren't like, oh, I don't know, it feels like there's something missing and they still have a fun experience, that, that system is probably not necessary. Uh, there's a great game I'm testing at the moment called Doppelgangers and it has two types of weapon, regular weapon, magical weapon. And so the first thing I did was I took out the magical weapons. And because the base game is so much fun, it's so solid, when I took out the magical weapons, all I did was take out cards and take out craft and take out mental energy. And the game, the, the core game experience was not affected because uh, I had to do three. I wanted to rush through them. But yeah, trust no one, throw out 98% of your ideas and cut everything that you can. They're all very negative, but the end result will be much more positive. Oh, I love that closing note. So, well, thank you everyone for tuning in to the 101st episode of Meeple Syrup, the futurist episode where we're prognosticating everything that's going to happen in the future. I want to thank uh, Charles Wright, Mike Primo, and our friend Peter Hayward here for coming out. And uh, good afternoon, everybody, where you are. And good night to everyone in Paris.